80s. A nostalgic wonderland caught between the new Hollywood renaissance of the 70s and the blockbuster explosion of the 90s. It's one thing to romanticize it. It's another to live through it. Drew McWeeney and Scott Weinberg were there for all of it. And now they're going back, month by month, film by film, to see what holds up, what doesn't, and why. It's the 80s all over. August of 1979, there were numerous things happening in pop culture and around the world. Michael Jackson released his breakthrough album, Off the Wall, on August 10th. ESPN had just launched on television, and the U.S. and Soviet Union had just sat down to negotiate the SALT II Treaty. Three Mile Island was on fire, and uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini was back in Iran after 15 years in exile. Needless to say, Americans were fleeing to theaters to escape what was happening in the outside world. And that's what we're going to look at this month. What was going on in movies in August of 1979, this week on a test episode of 80s All Over. Scott Weinberg, my co-host and esteemed uh, counterpart here. How old I were do. you in August of 1979? I was seven. All right. I would have been nine, but freshly nine. So some of these are movies that were aspirational for me at the time. Some of these are movies I actually saw. Um, keep in mind, I had a crazy uncle who used to like to torment me by taking me to see things I shoun't have. Right. And uh, some of these are movies that I didn't catch up with until a lot later, but that have become favorite since. This is about the time that I started to want to go to the movie. You know, you, when you're very young, your parents take you to the movies. And then you yeah. hit a certain age where you're like, I want to go see this. Can, Mom, can, my, can I go with my friends? Will you take me? Can I go with my sister? And, and seven, eight is about when I started being actively – I should say proactive about what I wanted to see, uh, much to everybody's chagrin, because I wanted to see virtually everything. I was the same way. And I think this was this was right around the time I started to really chafe against ratings, where it would drive me crazy that there were things I wasn't allowed to see. And mm-hmm. I would start to try and figure out ways that I could maybe get around that. And it was, thank God, right about this moment that one of my grandmothers got cable and went to bed at about eight o'clock every night. And could not have been a more negligent caregiver uh, after a certain hour. So I got to see everything there. I got that. Um, My grandmother (laughs) also lived in a condo in Northeast Philly. And they were also the very first people in probably a 30-mile radius to get HBO. For some reason, were condo developments. And uh, not not only did I spend weekends there with my sister, but I would come over and she would have recorded for me on, on VHS tapes just random movies. She would just hit record at eight o'clock and get two and a half movies for me on one VHS tape or sometimes a full three. My grand, my, my maternal grandmother was the best. If I owe my movie uh, affections to anybody, it's my uh, my late maternal grandmother. She was <sighs> the best, the best. Yeah, you got to warn me if I – I'll probably tell that anecdote about my grandmother a thousand times across this podcast. So, <laughs> uh, but, but I do remember that some of the films that she recorded off HBO for me were The Boogins. A really obscure Tom Skerritt film called Savage Harvest. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 and another one with, I think, Peter Fonda called Dance of the Dwarfs. I was just watching um, the Richard Linklater film Everybody Wants Some the other night uh, for the second time. And one of my favorite moments in that is when Wyatt Russell's character 
uh, Willoughby. They're in his dorm room, and he's got all the VHS tapes, and he's got them all carefully labeled with the names of the Twilight Zone episodes on each one. And I remember how carefully I labeled all of my VHS tapes and how I would try and theme them with the movies that I would put on the same tapes. It was I, That is such a particular moment for movie freaks to remember that and to see that. Well, um, let's dig into this month. And I think uh, I think we've been talking about it. And I think there's a really easy format here. So I'm just going to read a title and then we're both going to answer the same first question, which is where and when did you actually see this movie for the first time? So we're going to start with the biggest movie I think that came out this month and truly uh, one of the most important movies of the late 70s, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. This is the end. Beautiful friend. Apocalypse Now, when I saw it in film class in probably ninth or 10th grade, obviously blew me away. I remember the album. I don't remember. I didn't get to see the film when it first came out, but I did get the soundtrack. And I think this, the soundtrack was one of those that had dialogue. Never get out of the boat. Absolutely goddamn right. And it also had the, the score from the film and uh, some of the songs from the movie. And it was I, it was a pretty crazy uh, soundtrack to only hear bits and pieces of it and have no idea what the context was or anything else. When I finally saw the movie, is probably not too fairly different than when you did. I would say 85. And uh, I saw it home, on home video first. And then a year later, got to see it in the theater for the first time. And then when I moved to L.A., started seeing it in 70 millimeter every time it played in 70 millimeter here. So probably saw it another five or six times theatrically during the first decade I lived in Los Angeles. And at that point, that's when I really, I think, fell completely and utterly in love with it. Before then, I, home video, I just don't think this is one of those movies you can see there first, especially not VHS and pan and scan, and have it really uh, hit you properly. It's not that kind of film. No, no, I, didn't, I don't think I truly saw it until I saw it on a big screen, probably in the 90s. But the most interesting thing to me about Apocalypse Now, historically speaking, is that it's kind of the antithesis of Heaven's Gate. Uh, people look at Heaven's Gate as a movie that was went way, way over budget, partially because of the director's hubris, partially because of just uh, countless production problems. And it failed. It virtually destroyed the director's career at, in a way bankrupted an entire studio. And so that's a horrible cautionary tale. But then you look at Apocalypse Now, and in many ways, its production was very, very similar to Heaven's oh, Gate, yeah. and yet it turned out to be a hit Oscar winner and still considered unquestionable classic war film. Well, I would, I would agree, and I think the fact that they came out only a year apart, uh, Coppola really dodged a bullet because this thing could have easily ended his career just as much as uh, Chimino's film ended his one of the things that makes this interesting is that there's so much documentation about the making of Apocalypse Now, and the making of it has almost become as big an experience and as big an event as the film itself, thanks to Hearts of Darkness, thanks to the book about it by Eleanor Coppola. I mean, it really has been unbelievably well-documented, every weird twist and turn in the making of this movie. And it's, it's miraculous that it works at all, and yet it's one of those films that the longer you spend with it and the older it gets the more I think really he got everything about it right. To a newbie, which cut would you recommend they watch? I think the theatrical. I think it's it's one of those – the Redux is fine as an experiment. I am not as fond of the Redux cut. I think that there are choices he made in the original that were the right choice. I think the French plantation scene is two and a half extra hours the film doesn't need. 
I think there are things that he cut that simply helped in terms of pace. And for me, the theatrical cut plays far more like a horror film. There is something dark adventure. Yeah. The further you get up that river, the more and more insane it gets. And to me, the French uh, plantation, which is a beautiful sequence and says a lot about um, sort of the uh, history of Vietnam and how we weren't the first people to try and go and, and take that place and hold it. And it's a real reminder of how colonialism had failed there once before. But it comes at the wrong point in the film, and it just derails it energy-wise. And this is one of those experiences, maybe my parents should never listen to this podcast, but uh, there was a a time when it was playing the Cinerama Dome here in L.A., and they have this amazing 70-millimeter theater there. And they get some of the best 70-millimeter prints I've ever seen, some of the best-kept ones. And I knew they were going to be playing it, and so I had a friend take me and babysit me. And I may or may not have uh, taken something that may or may not have greatly enhanced my experience in the theater, uh, and I, I, to this day, will remember Ride of the Valkyries as a 3D virtual reality simulator experience that I actually had where I ended up on the beach during that thing. And I still maintain one of the most amazing physical sequences anybody's ever staged for any film. And it is both funny and terrifying. He earns the title Apocalypse Now. That The movie feels like the end of everything. And he just happened to have a camera there to catch it. Here's one that I actually didn't see until much later, and looking back on it, it feels like a time capsule of the end of 1979, and that is Americathon with John Ritter. Taking up a collection before America's all gone. If this is a movie, it must be an Americathon. Oh, man, yeah. Even as, like, I don't know, I probably saw it when I was 10 or 12. It's terrible. Like yeah. even as a even as a kid, it's got a hell of an ensemble, right? Oh my god, it's it is honestly one of the one of the densest ensemble pictures. And this is a lot like a Scavenger Hunt, which we discussed in our first test episode, where you get the feeling that they threw everything they possibly could at this film in order to try and create this like comedy event. And it's not particularly funny; it's more frantic than anything else. The idea is that America's gone bankrupt. And the government has the the bright idea that they're going to make a 24-hour telethon where the president's going to host it, and they're going to try to keep it from being repossessed by Native Americans who have come back to claim the country. And uh, Neil Israel, who directed this, he went on to work on the Naked Gun movies. and Party, Police Academy. This was supposed to be like a major break for him. He had John Ritter, Harvey Corman, Fred Willard, Peter Riegert, um, Nancy Morgan, Meatloaf, Elvis Costello. There's a lot of musical guests. Uh, young Jay Leno is in this, playing a character known as Poopy Butt. Shut up, Ma! No way to talk to your mother, little Poopy Butt. I told you not to call me that! Poopy Butt? Poopy Butt? Poopy Butt! I'm gonna kill you, Ma! I think it's a product of, of in the late 70s, there were a series of these, you know, after SNL became a hit... It's, it's almost like uh, indie producers realized, hey, if we could do SNL-style content but do it rated R, then you get stuff like the Groove Tube and, and uh, Tunnel Vision. Tunnel Vision, Can I Do It Till I Need Glasses? And I think it comes out of that school of American comedy. They pack all of this into like 82 minutes and even then feels like it lays there at times. I remember not liking it, but I would definitely – if it were right in front of me, given the election year bullshit that we're dealing with, I would maybe give it another spin just to see, 
you won't find a bigger John Ritter fan than me. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I would watch it again just for that guy. Uh, this next one, I think, is a huge film for you and probably a touchstone for anybody who is horror crazy at a certain point. And that is August 79's The Amityville Horror. The Amityville Horror is, to me, one of those, if you're of our approximate generation, that you probably, for many years, lumped it in with classics like The Exorcist and The Omen, really undisputed classics of the genre. And then yep. when, you, when you rediscovered it at like 22, 27, 29, <laughs> you were like, you know what? This ain't so good. But it does have some legitimately good assets in its corner. The production design is not not just the exterior of the house, but the production design is legitimately creepy. The performances, Margot Kidder is is particularly good. It has a few moments that uh, if you want to just push the nostalgia button, the whole bit with the missing money and the dad losing his shit. Oh, no. I'm coming apart! Oh, mother of God, I'm coming apart! My father, never, obviously never to that degree, but that's kind of how a lot of dads were in that if he didn't get his way or he couldn't make himself happy, he would just sabotage the whole night and make everybody miserable. And man, that that really hit home, that whole sequence with Brolin losing the money and just way, way, way overreacting. Uh, It has some good scares. And of course, the score is unbelievable. So as far as like its place in horror history, I would say, you know, it's definitely worth seeing if you're, you know, a student of the genre. Uh, it definitely has its place as a hit and as a cultural touchstone because it was very controversial. This whole story was very controversial. I'll leave that to you to get into. It was interesting seeing the beginning of The Conjuring 2 this summer and seeing their take on uh, Amityville and knowing that they had to get through it fairly quickly because they don't have the rights to do necessarily the whole movie. Nor do they really need to. I thought it was clever. Yeah. Hey, if you understand which case they just solved, a.k.a. Amityville, then it yeah. raises the stakes for the next case they're about to solve, which is obviously the bulk of Conjuring 2. And that works, in my opinion, great. I thought that was smart. And I, I honestly thought the moment they finished the first Conjuring that Amityville it had to be contended with at some point because it's the most famous thing the Warrens ever did. It's really interesting to me to look back at this movie and see how it's barely a B picture. It's pretty much a C picture. It is kind of low rent. It's a little sleazy in places. It's not as sleazy as the second one. It pushes that line, which you could almost admire in a way, but it does seem a little bit indulgent when it doesn't need to be. I remember also reading the book, and I remember really buying into it. I believed, at the very least, that it was possible. It was the Blair Witch Project of the late 70s, without question. And I look back at it now, man. It is embarrassingly silly. It is every hokey cliche effectively thrown together in sort of a brute sense. But there's really nothing to the writing of either the film or the book. If you haven't seen it in a while, stay fond of it. Really don't go back to it. All right, so next up, here's a movie that I have a weird history with because this is the movie that led me to read The World According to Gart by John Irving at the entirely wrong age. And John Irving broke me. I, I can't even describe what that book did to me when I read it. And it was because... Irving wrote so frankly about sex and about parenthood and about disappointment and about uh, feminism at, at a point where it was still kind of terrifying to the mainstream. 
it was a it was a fascinating thing. I shouldn't have read it when I did. And the whole reason that I picked it up from the library was my parents had forbidden me 100% from seeing Monty Python's Life of Brian. Uh. Because they had heard that the uh, Monty Python cast had been excommunicated from the church, that they were no longer allowed to be Catholics, that it was completely anti-religion, and that anybody who watched it would go immediately to hell, and it was the end of civilization. Of course I wanted to see that. Why wouldn't I want to see that? And Mm. I remember the poster for Life of Brian. I remember standing in the lobby and flipping out about it. And I knew Monty Python from TV. I occasionally watched Flying Circus. It would drive my parents crazy when I did. But I I knew that I was interested. So I was at the library. I saw the world according to Garp. Somehow in my head, I thought it was the same thing. Picked it up, read it, fell in love. And it wasn't for another year and a half before I finally saw Monty Python's Life of Brian. Which now I would say in the grand scheme of all the films they made as a complete group, I think it's the smartest and best of their movies. I don't want to speak for them, but they'd probably agree with you. It's comparable to Monty Python and the Holy Grail for pure laughs, but for pure balls and audacity, it blows anything else they've done out of the water. It's a brave satire to ridicule the church so blatantly. Clearly, The entire idea of dogma and how people fall in love. How people can get hung up arguing over whether they're the People's Front of Judea or the Judean People's Front yeah. or whether they're those bastards, the Judean People's Front of Judea. It's hilarious to me how dead on they get yep. the minutia of why people fight over the dumbest possible and shit. Therein lies part of the beauty of Monty Python is that when you watch a Monty Python movie or Flying Circus at 12, you laugh your ass off at certain things. When you see those films and those mo- those episodes when you're 25, you're laughing at the silly stuff that you laughed at when you were 12. And then you're also grasping all these other layers that a 12-year-old brain doesn't really get. I didn't get jokes about Jesus when I was 12. But when I read, when I saw Life of Brian when I was 25, I went, oh, my Lord. You know, like, how did they get away with this? When you talk about classic comedy, one of the ways to remain perpetually beloved is to work on variety of levels, you know, and and that's what Monty Python did to an unbelievable degree. Every piece of praise they've ever received is earned. They're, you know, easily one of the most influential uh, comedy troops of all time, if not number one. Yeah, I I think they're the Beatles of of comedy, and I think that this is that movie where – they literally crossed paths with the Beatle with George Harrison starting handmade films in order to get this made. That's a totally different and amazing legacy. We're going to come back to handmade films several times over the course of this series because they did some remarkable work in the eighties and they were one of those great indie companies that you could count on to have a real voice and a real identity and to help filmmakers that otherwise might never be able to make the things that they were making. The beautiful thing about companies like that was the guys who Built Handmade trusted the filmmakers to just go yeah. make what they wanted. We love what you do. We're not trying to tell you what to make. We're gonna we're gonna help fund your movies. That's beautiful. And I don't care. You know, could be it could be George Harrison or it could be you know your local dentist investing in your movie. It doesn't matter. But that's the beauty of I will support your art. There's one scene in this movie that I think is one of the great smart jokes I've ever seen, where they're doing the graffiti and the guards catch them, the Roman guards, and they force them to reconjugate the verb and then to punish them, write it 50 times on the wall. 
what a phenomenal setup and what a great silly payoff when they didn't take a step back and actually read what they wrote. But then the opposite end of that for me, and it's one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen. The first time I saw the whole sequence involving Biggest Dickus. Biggest Dickus, man. And even just it's trying to say his name. Anybody else feel like a little giggle when I mention my friend, Biggest Dickus? What about you? Do you find it visible? When I say the name, Dickus, Dickus. Even if that's the only joke you get when you see Life of Brian at 12 years old, even if that's the only joke you get, you love that movie. <laughs> yeah. Palin is my favorite Python as a Me performer. Too. Ditto. I Ditto. love Michael Palin deeply. I think he's so, so remarkable. And that sequence, watching him try to break the other pythons, watching him have so much fun with the power of that name and knowing that all he has to do is say it with that lisp and that weird speech impediment and the timing that he has, and he destroys them all. It is unbelievably great. I think I would agree that it's their best film. Uh, Maybe one whisker below it is Holy Grail. Even like Meaning of Life, which is half inspired and half kind of forgettable. But the good stuff in that movie is really good. Now, this next one is a movie that I I am not sure where you fall on it. I'm really curious. And I'm going to ask you where you saw it and when you saw it. And what you knew about it walking in. Because I think it's one of those movies, everybody has a very different experience with this. This was not a cultural moment. This was not something we all shared at the same time. And it's weird because it, it was a follow-up to a massive, monster cultural sensation. I'm speaking, of course, about More American Graffiti. I saw it not long after it made its first premiere, and I became obsessed with it. Part of what I find fascinating about it is the way it so consciously breaks the structure of the first film, which is all set on one long night with all the characters intercutting. This is set on three different New Year's Eves on different years, and it's the, the only way we see the characters is the way they crisscross through those three stories. I really love the Terry the Toad story, what they did with Charles Martin Smith going to Vietnam. And it's funny that we talk about Apocalypse Now on this episode because for a long time, George Lucas wanted to make Apocalypse Now. He was going to go shoot it in 16 millimeter in Vietnam during the actual war was the original plan. Obviously, that didn't happen. But... When you look at the way the Vietnam stuff is shot in More American Graffiti, it looks the way I would imagine his Apocalypse Now would have looked. There's a very newsreel footage to it. It's all 16 millimeter. It's all shot square in the middle of the screen. This film also, B.W.L. Norton was the director of it, and he played a lot with the different aspect ratios for each of the three different stories. So you get the blown out scope story. You get the story in Vietnam, which is all shot square in the center of things. And then you get a San Francisco story where there's a lot of split screen and it's cut like Woodstock. I'm fascinated by the way this film was made. I understand why it was never going to be as successful as the first one in terms of what it does for the audience. Part of it is at the end of that first film, we get those title cards that say what's going to happen to each of the characters. And some of those endings are fairly sad for the characters, including what happens to Charles Martin Smith and what happens to uh, John Milner, played by, of course, Paul Lamatt. 
in this film, we see those stories play out. So we know we're counting down to Paul Lamette's death. We know we're counting down to Terry the Toad disappearing into Vietnam. We know that it's not going to end well for everybody. And I think there's a greater sense of pending sadness that's not as fun as that first film. And, and it's unavoidable because of the stories they chose to tell. And it's fairly experimental in structure and, and tone. And I think um, when you look at the work that Ron Howard and Cindy Williams do in it, uh, their their couple is now married and on the verge of divorce. And it's a very different, especially for kids that were growing up on Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, those performances are far more adult and far more grounded and far more um, shot through with a real sadness and uh, sort of an anger than anything either of those actors did on television. It is a maligned film. It is a rarely seen film. I'm guessing you, you think more American Graffiti is an underrated sequel. I do. I think, it's, I think it's one of those films that if people saw it, they might actually enjoy it. I just don't think a lot of people have ever seen it. I think there's a lot of people that don't even know it exists. I think I probably saw it on like Encore Channel, which was great. That's for- very probably true because yeah. I tried to find it for years and video. It just wasn't there. And mm-hmm. here's why. It was a music rights issue. Uh, of course, of course. Uh, when it finally came out on Laserdisc from Universal, they had to replace some of the music. And I'm not sure exactly what it was that became too expensive, but something in that interim had just become crazy expensive. So it didn't, it didn't work for them. You know, heavy metal was the same way for a long time. They yeah. almost build, they either build a weird reputation because you can't see them or they are utterly forgotten because you can't see them. Yeah, and I think same, it's a real dice same roll. Go, uh, Cameron Crowe's film, The Wildlife. Yep. It was like a semi-sequel to Fast Times, and it was for the longest time. You, it just virtually didn't exist because of music rights. So so what you would recommend to our listeners is if you give American Graffiti another spin soon, which you should, because it truly is the dazed and confused of its era. It is fantastic. American Graffiti, you know, it sounds like, uh, oh, you know, old and dated. Nope. It is a it, it still holds up. It's a remarkably good film. And then if you feel like it, dig up the sequel and watch it like in the same night. And, I, and absolutely. You know. I think it's I think you'll be really surprised by how solid and how well intentioned and how how somber and interesting the sequel is. It's not the first film at all, but I don't think it's trying to be. I think it has real ambition to it. Yeah, even though I don't think it's entirely successful, I will give it in a lot of credit for not just doing the exact same thing because they could have just easily done like, oh, it could have been like a big chill type movie. Oh, they're all getting together or someone died or it's a barbecue and it's just the same ensemble with the exact same formula. Give it give it credit for at least trying something different. This next film is something that I remember wanting to see desperately because I thought it was going to be hilarious. And I remember reading the book first. That happened a lot where I couldn't get to see a movie, so I would read the book. And I figured at least I would have some sense of what it was. I read the book and I thought, okay, this movie is going to be super crazy when I finally see it. It's going to be raunchy and filthy. And you see the movie, and by today's standards especially, this is a fairly tame, wild movie. And I'm talking about Ted Kotcheff's adaptation of the Peter Gent novel, North Dallas 40. To people who have grown up on like, you know, HBO series like First and Ten, nothing, nothing in this movie will come as a big shock. But for its time, North Dallas 40 was a very raunchy kind of controversial film based on a controversial book. Uh, and it was unafraid about showing professional football players as oh, not exclusively, of course, but showing them as womanizers, as brutish assholes. Not a very flattering portrayal. Although the source material is, if I'm led to believe, uh, considerably more 
uh, incendiary, yeah. considerably more uh, telling than the movie version. It was supposed to be basically the Dallas Cowboys, which during the 70s, that was America's team. That was some of the biggest business going on in football at the time. And they got very protective. There was a lot of controversy about whether or not they were going to actually get to release the film, uh, whether or not it was going to have to be cut in order to appease uh, some of the people that they were basically talking about. And a really good cast. It's it's interesting. Mac Davis is one of those guys who did not have a long film career by any means. There was a brief moment where he showed up and he worked a fair amount for that short period of time playing a very, very particular type of character. I guess if you had to compare him to a today's actor, like he was like a Sam Worthington. <laughs> yeah. Did good work in a handful of movies. Didn't really parlay that into a, a very long career. Well, he was part of that sort of late 70s burst of uh, sort of urban country where country was kind of pushing into the mainstream and it wasn't totally hillbilly country anymore. It was more like good old boy party country. Getting away from hee-haw and more towards urban cowboy. You know, Ed is going to get your ass for this, boy. Yeah, but then you going to do nothing to you. Hell, I ain't the one that's done it. Yeah, but you're going to take something that makes you a They turn me in, they got to turn you in, and they won't do that. That's because I'm a stalker. Genuine sports personality. A legendary folk hero. Folk hero? Have some folks dream. I don't mind if I do. Little Calmazine. Uh, Would you like cocaine? Does a shark shit in the sea? Come on. Yeah, there it is. is. One for me. Oops. Breakfast for champions there. Hector uh, of the gods. Yes. Do you remember when he did the Sting 2? Yes, I do, and I, that I saw in the movies. <laughs> oh, we're gonna have, we're gonna have a special conversation about the state. Uh, let me tell you yeah, something. Yeah. When we get to 1983, there's gonna be blood on the walls. I am convinced. <laughs> I am convinced that 1983 is the worst film year of my life. Uh, you're you're very very probably right. It's pretty right. terrible. Well, and to me, this is this is part of the interesting era for Nick Nolte, where he was still young and pretty. And we didn't quite realize what a freak show Nick Nolte could be. They were still casting him as kind of the blonde, all-American, big, athletic guy. Uh, he's very funny in this movie. He had done a little bit of comedy before now, but he was mainly like a rugged, either a romantic lead or a rugged, tough guy. And I think this is one of the first movies that showed Nick Nolte has a, a good sense of humor. And I just a lot of John Lutusak being, being yeah. interesting as a real football player yep. who also happened to be Pretty crazy and funny in it. Uh, John Matuzak, as most people would know, would later go on to play Sloth in The Goonies. It, it's fun as a sports movie because it's like uh, you you do kind of root for some of the guys, but mostly it's an kind of an insider's satire of NFL football of that era. And obviously much of it is very dated, but I would bet that it holds up pretty well if you dig movies of this ilk. I think you'll I think North Dallas 40 is a good film. I think the strongest thing about it is something that part of what was going on in the book and part of what was going on in the film is the idea that even as late as the uh, the mid 60s, early 70s, uh, there was a fair amount of segregation going on still in professional football. And this film is is clearly set at a moment where the uh, the league is starting to really grapple with being a truly integrated league in every way. And there's a lot of tension that's in it. And, you know, Nick Nolte, he was not afraid of playing kind of a, 
a creep or a uh, bullheaded piece of garbage in some of these films. You know, you watch him in 48 Hours, you watch him in this, there's very little you can't ask Nick Nolte to do. And he's always good at it. He has his specialties, his, you know, angry bluster and gruff nature, but the guy can, I honestly believe he's very versatile. All right, well, uh, this next one, big film for me when it came out in 1979, and it was one of those films that I was allowed to see. I remember going to see it in the theater and really liking it. I've only ever seen it that one time. I've never gone back to it, so I have no idea how it aged. But at the time, I was nine, and the film was about 12-year-olds, and it felt just old enough that I felt like I was getting some glimpse into what was going to happen next and what adolescence was going to be like, and I really loved Rich Kids. Never seen it. Yeah, it's uh, it's two kids uh, who are growing up rich in New York and living in the Upper West Side, and both of them are dealing with parents who are splitting up. This is the same basic time that Kramer versus Kramer came out, and I feel like divorce was still kind of a new topic in film. And what I liked about this when I saw it at the time was, unlike Kramer versus Kramer, which was all about the adults, this was very much about the kids processing what was going on around them and trying to just figure out their own place in it. Uh, Trini Alvarado uh, was one of the two kids. I don't remember who played the boy. I know uh, that it, 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 it in a year later, I remember that it played on a double feature at a local drive-in with my bodyguard. And oh, I didn't. Nice. I bet that would have been a great double feature. Yeah, and I didn't go because I'd already seen my bodyguard. So I, that was for, clearly that was my only point in life to ever have seen rich kids. But I remember both John Lithgow from it and Paul Dooley. The Paul Dooley can do no wrong. He's a great yeah. character actor. He had just come off, what, uh, Breaking Away? No, no, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it was that same year. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. A great actor. He would soon play Wimpy in a certain film that I adore. So this next one is actually on HBO right now. If you go and you're curious, I think they're doing a little uh, sort of Alan Alda tribute at the moment. And as a result, if you want to go see a movie that Alan Alda wrote, which I believe was the first theatrical feature that he wrote, as well as starring in, it is The Seduction of Joe Tynan. There are many ways to be seduced. By fame. By power. By love. And Joe Tynan knows them all. Uh, this was also part of the introduction of Meryl Streep, who was really starting to break through that year with Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, the Deer Hunter was right after this. Um, it was her moment, but this was far and away designed as an Alan Alda vehicle and meant to change his reputation and his image because at this point he was the dude from MASH. This is a film that obviously as a kid I had no interest in, but uh, we saw it in a, in a class, uh, I believe in college, where it was uh, political films. And it was one of the few that I hadn't seen, so I was very excited. It's really good. Well, it's, a, it's enormously timely. It's about a, yeah. a, a young liberal politician who is tapped for what is supposed to be the biggest honor of his career. He's asked to uh, block the appointment of a Supreme Court justice who's going to be super, super conservative. And it is about everything that he has to do, all the manipulation, all the uh, maneuvering that goes into getting anything done in, in Washington. Alda wrote it as a liberal who was acknowledging it's not about whether you're liberal or conservative. It's about how well you learn to game this system. 
And at the time, it was still a fairly radical notion. We were, you got to remember, this is only four or five years after Watergate went down. We had just gotten to the point where we were starting to realize that maybe our elected officials did not have our best interests at heart. It's good to note that there was a while there where Alan Alda was writing and directing some good films. Yeah. From the mid 70s to the like mid 80s. He he made the four seasons. That's a very good film. He did an uh, obscure film called Sweet Liberty, which is very entertaining. I remember there were, there were two performances that really stood out in it. I, Meryl Streep was very good and it was definitely part of that early introduction of her work. But I remember both Melvin Douglas, who I was fascinated by because of being there. And Rip Torn. And this was back when Rip Torn was still basically off the set, a total wild man lunatic. Mm. And that energy in that film, he is something else. All right, we're going to wrap this one up with a totally loony. The only reason this film even existed is so that they could have a poster where they could put Farrah Fawcett in a white bathing suit and hope that that was enough to get you to come see the movie. I'm speaking of Sunburn. Oh, man. I like to think that some people will do anything for $5 million. Sunburn, a hot comedy thriller. These people are killers! About a private dick, a classy chick. Oh, you are sneaky. And an old guy named Al. First, I figure we gotta talk money. As detectives, they were second to everyone. Farrah Fawcett Majors, Charles Grodin, Art Carney. Sunburn, rated PG. Because the poster was what everybody knew her for, they didn't care if she could act or not, and she couldn't. That God bless her. She was she was a charming lady who, as she got older, definitely got better. Uh, Mid eighties, yeah. definitely yes. But early on, when they when they just when she was she left Charlie's Angels, she was kind of like Chevy Chase. She left her TV show that she got famous for as soon as she possibly could. The moment that movies came calling, she was done with the TV show. But they didn't know what to do with her. And this was a perfect example of that, where the whole thing is Charles Grodin is an insurance investigator and this rich old man dies and his widow wants the insurance company to cut a check. And I believe it's Joan Collins playing the widow. Charles Grodin and Farrah Fawcett are the ones that are on her tail trying to figure out whether or not he died of natural causes or an accident or if it was murder. Art Carney's in it. William Daniels is in it. John Hillerman is in it. All the late seventies character actor staples. Oh, I never yeah. saw the poster with the sunglasses on it. Yep. Uh, and all of it was meant to just prop her up and make sure that they could put her in the bathing suit in any place they wanted to sell the film. I think as a seven or eight year old, I think I was just more interested in anything with monsters or car chases or explosions. I if you had said Farrah Fawcett sex comedy, I wouldn't have cared. I just I still wonder what the hell my parents were thinking. When I was in first grade, I had a T-shirt that was the Farrah Fawcett poster. And you go back and look at that poster. The appeal is clearly nipples. Yeah. First grade, running around with that on my T-shirt. And then later, crazy historical footnote, I moved to Texas right after this. So it would have been uh, summer of 80. I moved to Texas, was living in a place called Conroe. And our house was on a golf course in this crazy neighborhood. And our next door neighbors were Farrah Fawcett's parents. What? And so she came home one time, and I remember every kid in my neighborhood coming to my house to stand in the backyard and wait just in case she might step outside. It was crazy how big a star she was at that moment. So that's it, man. We did a full month. We did August of 1979. Out of all of these, Scott, what are the films that really stand out for you as, as being enduring 
great, interesting movies. Well, Apocalypse Now, obviously, for culture or pop culture currency, Amityville Horror definitely left a mark. Obviously, Americathon, without question, Americathon. <laughs> I would say that of these, the one that I would urge people to see that they probably haven't is more American Graffiti. And Life of Brian, about as good as comedy gets, about as smart as comedy gets. If that's the month you have, if you have one month where you get two of those movies, not it's a, not bad, a month. bad month. August of 1979. So that'll wrap it up. Scott, a lot of fun. I think we're, we're getting more comfortable doing this. I look forward to digging into the actual 80s with you very soon, my friend. Yes, my name is Scott Weinberg. You can find me on Twitter at Drew at HitFix. <laughs> Wait, what? And that's my co-host, Drew McQueeny. You can find him on Twitter at Scott E. Weinberg. Just look for the alien egg. That's me. Thank you very much to our brilliant producer, Bobby Roberts. Thank you, sir. And uh, we will be back uh, next week and dig into the actual decade itself. 80s wall-to-wall man here on 80s All Over. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>